0: Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment.
1: If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a great story. If you want to inspire someone, share your success story. And that's what this show is all about. In the spotlight, Lauren Baker, the First Lady of Massachusetts. A former advertising executive with a master's from the Kellogg School at Northwestern, Lauren is the mother of three grown children and has made the state's most vulnerable children her number one priority. What started out as an initiative for the First Lady has now become an avocation. She serves as the unpaid vice chairwoman for the Wonder Fund. And each and every day is learning more and more about how childhood trauma impacts brain chemistry and lifelong health and well being. What's it like to champion this cause and to be the state's first lady? We are settled into the governor's ceremonial office to find out. This is Lauren Baker's story. Lauren, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Here we are. Quite an introduction.
1: I feel like I should have all my interviews in the ceremonial office. Can I hang out here a little more often? Isn't it beautiful? It really is. Just gorgeous. I have been studying up on all things Lauren Baker. (laughs) That's a little embarrassing. We are both (laughs) Connecticut girls, growing up only a few miles from one another in Westport, Connecticut. So can you tell me what your childhood was like? Brothers, sisters, what was your house like?
2: I... I think I am incredibly blessed to have had a happy childhood growing up in Connecticut. I have one younger brother and two incredible parents who gave us everything. What was it like in your house? Were your parents strict? I wouldn't say that my parents were strict, but they definitely set the bar really high. And there were very clear expectations about behavior and accomplishment. They were not super strict, but if you made a poor choice, it was more about having to sit through the discussion about it. <laughs> yeah. It would, you know, a which lot was of painful the, enough, right, right? Lauren? <laughs> it would have been easier to just get grounded, yeah. but that never happened. You know, it was well, come and sit with us, and let's talk about your choice <laughs> and the decisions you made, and what you might have done better, right. and what you will do better right. next time. Right. That was painful. Uh, it sounds like a
1: loving home, though. It's great. Your family left Connecticut and you moved to Chicago. Tell me about that experience because, you know, I I moved around a lot when I was a little girl and it's not easy, is it? It must have been hard to sort of pull yourself up and go to a new place.
2: Well, my father changed jobs when I was a sophomore in high school. We moved from Westport to Kenilworth, Illinois, which is right outside Chicago. And I thought I was going to die. I think, you know, any anybody who's... You're the
1: meanest parents I ever met. I can't believe you're ruining my life like this. Did exactly. it go something like that?
2: Yes, exactly <laughs> like that. And by the time you're a sophomore in high school, you kind of have your friends and you're, sure. you're set and you feel like... You're part of the action, right? And then to go and be a new girl in a school that could not have been any different from Staples High School in Westport to New Trier High School was 10 times bigger, 10 times more strict. But I think actually that probably saved my life because I needed the structure and the rules. I think that really helped me.
1: Gymnastics was always a huge part of your life. Can you tell me about your gymnastics
2: experience? Because you started really
1: young and did it all the way through college.
2: I did. I started, I think, in sixth grade or something. I really never got bored with that. It's one of those sports where you, you can always be better. That's probably true in every sport, but I really loved spending hours and hours in the gym, and I think that helped me a lot. I'm surprised as an adult when I talk to people about what they were doing in high school and college between the hours of, you know, three and seven when I was in the gym every single day. That's right. And I'm so glad that I was in the gym because I don't know what I would have, (laughs) I don't know how I would have
1: turned out. So let's talk a little bit about your gymnastics. Tell me about the events that you excelled at.
2: I guess my favorite event was the vault i think largely because it because you like to fly you just have to <laughs> well you just go for it and it's over and you get two tries which is really nice yeah. you know balance beam florex i really liked but you don't get a second chance they last a long time and yeah. they're brutally hard and that yes. did not come naturally to me i don't think and uneven bars, I never did until college because in college you really have to be an all-around athlete. That's right. Um, yeah, just for the points. Uh-huh. We made nationals when I was a freshman, and then <laughs> we didn't make it after. That. That's okay. But so
1: you got the so. experience of what it was like to go to nationals. Yes. Can you do any of these tricks still? Can you? Sure. You know, could you do a flip in this in the ceremonial office? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, probably not. Um, I've been teaching gymnastics forever. Could you see
1: yourself maybe being a gymnastics coach later on in life? You know, I I used to be a preschool teacher, by the way, and I often think maybe when I retire someday,
2: I'll go back to being a preschool teacher. Maybe you could be a gymnastics coach. I definitely could do that. I don't know if I will, because the easiest way for me to teach gymnastics, frankly, is to show them. You're not up for the paranormal. I'm not up for that uh, right now. Uneven bars and the Florex. Forget about it. Yeah. (laughs) I think I'm a little afraid to do that now.
1: Where did you go undergrad again? Northwestern. Okay. And so then you went and stayed there and got your master's at the Kellogg School. Right. Correct? Did you know what you wanted to do when you went for your master's? Because you ended up doing branding and marketing. Did you have a clear view at that point about what you wanted to do with your life?
2: Yes, I think I did. I was an English major undergrad, but I knew from probably when I was in high school that I wanted to go to business school. I was always really interested in marketing and communications, and I think largely because that's what my father did. He was in brand management most of his career in consumer products, marketing. You grew up around it. I grew up around it, and I thought it was fun and interesting. I really gravitated more towards advertising than sort of straight brand management because I like the communications end of the whole marketing spectrum. It's it's amazing. There's so
1: much persuasion involved and the writing is so specific. It was then at Northwestern in your grad program that you met this guy named Charlie Baker. Can you tell me about your first impression of him? And did you know that he was the one for you?
2: (laughs) Charlie and I were in the same section which is kind of like homeroom in business school. I saw him a lot during orientation, but I didn't really get to know him. I met him really and talked to him for the first time when classes started. And I remember sitting in the first class of strategy D30. Charlie was in the first row where he always sat and he always had his hand up. And I was in the back row where I always sat because I was not quite confident that I knew what was going on. Um, On the very first day, the very first case we had, he figured out the answer to the case the second the class started and the professor was kind of like yeah well actually that's right and (laughs) and um, now what am i going to do for the rest of this lesson and now i'm going to backtrack for the rest of the world so that all of you will understand how charlie got to the answer Um, wow so smart smart guy really smart and i just knew the first time i met him that he was the one i really did and i i remember thinking to myself i'm going to marry that guy and then thinking Oh my God, did I just just say that? You didn't say it out loud, though. You must have kept it as a little secret for him. Oh, yes. (laughs) And it took me a good three years
1: to convince him that I was right. So what attracted you to each other, do you think? Is there some sort of magic that happened there or what?
2: First of all, he's very handsome. He's very cute. I think we are so much alike. We share a lot of the same values, certainly, and interests. I really like that he's really smart. And he challenges me to be better. And he thinks I'm funny, which is a really good thing. (laughs) You know, humor can save a marriage.
1: I tell you that I'm married to a guy who's very funny. And I never knew how important that could be. (laughs) You gotta laugh. You've got to laugh. So let's talk a little bit about your career in advertising for a second. You started on Madison Avenue. You're at the center of it all. You come to Boston. You work for Hill Holiday. That is such a fast-paced, there are no boundaries. That's not a nine-to-five kind of a job. I mean, you get embedded in an account, and it is all day and all night. What were those early years like for you?
2: So much fun. Really, really fun. I mean, New York was crazy, just a a whirlwind. I worked on carefully sugarless gum. So my client was in New Jersey. So I spent a lot of time on the New Jersey Turnpike. It was a great place to learn. I was at Dancer Fitzgerald. They had a great training program for young people, and I was one of the few MBAs in the lower ranks, so that helped me a lot, the clients, and helped me move quickly. And when we got married, I moved to Boston and went to Hill Holiday and worked on um, Royal Crown Cola and Labatt's Beer and then everything else. It's so much fun to be around a lot of really creative people and to be able to think strategically about how you're going to help your clients communicate what's special about their product and figure out who's the right person to talk to. I find that communication strategy is really, really fun and interesting. So I had a blast. It's amazing
1: because your face lights up as soon as you start talking about that. Motherhood changes (laughs) us all. How did it change you, Lauren? I mean, aside from gaining sixty pounds three no. times. You did? Um st- oh my God. Well we're gonna have pictures, but you're tiny, so that <laughs> must have been that must have been so uncomfortable for you. But you look oh. great, so
2: see you recovered. No, but I loved how does it, it change you? I, I think it's hard to articulate how it changes you, but I think you realize how selfish you have been as an individual until you have someone else's life in your hands. It is the hardest Best job I could have ever imagined. I think it makes me better in so many ways. You know, the Irish have an expression: when you have a child,
1: it's like your heart is walking around outside your body. Yeah, I love that. I think that's, that's true?
2: absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. You know, you never realize how deeply you could love another person. How sweet and terrifying it is at the same time. I talk about parenting as like walking through a dense fog and hoping that the step that you just took wasn't off a cliff because there's no way to know. Like, you know, you you make your best guess every day, every minute, and you just pray that, you know, you're imbuing all the best of yourself into these kids and that they'll grow up to be amazing, good people.
1: And they are grown. They are grown. Was there a golden rule in your house? What were the key messages that you and Charlie tried to send
2: to your three children? I think the golden rule in our house was tell the truth, always. Be good to other people and think about the consequences of your actions. You were very happy to take the back seat and raise your
1: children and certainly have had an incredible career in advertising. But when Charlie threw his hat in the ring for governor, you were all in. Take me back and tell me about that time in your
2: lives. We ran for office twice. And in 2010, we ran having never done that before. And our kids were in middle school, high school, and college. I focused during that time really hard on protecting the kids and making sure that their lives remained as normal as possible while their father was running for statewide office. So I really didn't participate as much in that campaign as I would have liked. And we lost, it was painful, but we learned so much from that. I don't think we would have won the second time if we hadn't run and lost the first time. What was the biggest thing you learned? The biggest thing we learned is you have to be yourself you have to be authentic. We knew we didn't know everything there was to know about running a campaign. And we had a lot of people giving us advice. And I think we should have relied a little bit more on our gut. I don't know, the Charlie Baker that was in that campaign in 2010 was not the guy that we all know and love. And so in 14, we made sure that all the messaging, everything that he said and everything that he did and still does is authentic to himself. And if it doesn't feel right, it isn't.
1: Politics can be cruel, mean, dirty. How have you and your children dealt with the slings and the arrows that just come along with the job? Everyone thinks he is the most popular governor in the United States of America and
2: everyone loves him, including me. But sometimes people say mean things. It's part of the job and you know, it going in, you know, no matter what you do, you're never going to make everyone happy all the time. So we recognize that as part of the job and you just, you hear it and you move forward. I've always wondered,
1: what does it feel like? You know, January 8th, 2015, they take the oath of office. He's got his hand on a Bible and you're standing there holding that Bible. What did that feel like for you? Your kids were there, I'm sure.
2: Yeah. It's surreal. It's like an out-of-body experience, really. You must have been thinking, this is the guy that I liked in that marketing class. (laughs) (laughs) Who had his hand up all the time, right? I have that feeling frequently. I don't think it'll ever go away. You sit in a room like this, where there's so much history, and you think, holy cow, you know, we're here. Charlie Baker is the governor (laughs) of Massachusetts. It's the most surreal experience, and it is is such a huge honor, such a huge undertaking, you know, and such a, a big thing. It's really mind bending when you think about joining history.
0: Please support our sponsors, they make this show possible. These days, more and more people are working from home. When your computer breaks down, you lose business. This is Dave Elmation, president of TechHelpBoston.com. Our tech experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer. Same day, next day, and weekends too. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted us since 2000. You can trust TechHelpBoston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com
1: there's no governor's mansion there's no formal role for the state's first lady you've got no staff you've got no office but you're passionate about the lives of children here in massachusetts these are kids who are under the state's department of child and family services you are part of something called the wonder fund can you tell us how it works
2: the wonder fund started as the dcf kids fund And when I was trying to figure out a way that I could use my skills and work experience to bring volunteer energy to help the lives of the children in Massachusetts, I focused on DCF because DCF serves over 50,000 of the state's most vulnerable children. And I thought that would be a, a great place to start to try to make an impact. I found the Kids Fund by accident, really. It's a private nonprofit that enjoys a unique partnership with the department where we're literally housed inside DCF. The Kids Fund was created by a social worker so that she could collect private donations to get holiday gifts to children in the care of the state. I love that model, and I saw so much potential in it as something that could help DCF in so many ways and really be able to serve all the children who are engaged with the department, but the way it was structured wasn't scalable. There's no way that it could have served as many children as it should. I started working with them every single day in 2016, and we have reimagined and re-engineered every single piece of the DCF Kids Fund, and we relaunched it last June as the Wonder Fund. It's now a scalable, model where we deliver emergency aid to a child when they're in that most horrific moment in their lives where they have to be removed from a home that's not safe. We provide a gift card to the social worker or the foster parent so that they can get that child whatever the child needs specifically for that first few days. And we'll make sure that the social worker who picks the child up has a new duffel bag filled with new pajamas and socks and underwear and clothes for the next day. Sometimes these
1: kids kids are removed from a home on an emergency basis, and they literally have nothing with them.
2: That happens more often than, than you we think. would like to think. And in Massachusetts this year, we believe there will be about 6,500 of those emergency removals across the state and none of those children will be removed from their home with nothing. They will all be given this duffel bag full of new clothing. We just want to give a little bit extra comfort and care in a horrific moment. And then when that child's settled, we will give them resources and opportunities for whatever it is that they want to do or need to do to feel like a normal kid to enrich their lives. You know, I saw a couple of examples of that. You've know, you
1: had boys come to you and say, I want to join." in the baseball team, but I don't have a glove and I don't have a bat and I don't, I can't afford the uniform. You take care of that. Somebody wants to become a certified lifeguard. You enroll them in an American Red Cross program and pay the fee. Awesome. (laughs) This is a very small, little known nonprofit. It started out as an initiative for the first lady. It has now become a huge part of your life. You've been learning as you go. Research is showing that childhood trauma impacts lifelong health and well-being. Can you tell us more about this?
2: I started to pay a lot of attention to the research that exists because it's a personal interest of mine, but I also wanted to take advantage of the incredible amount of world-class research and healthcare that exists right here in the Boston area. We have the world's most renowned experts on brain development, on toxic stress, on child development, and the impacts of trauma on lifelong health and well-being. And I wanted to wrap my arms around the research that already exists and use it to validate the work that the Wonder Fund does, but also the work that DCF does and hope that I can you know, certainly keep the Wonder Fund providing the most effective forms of enrichment and support that children need and have it be data-driven. There's a lot of work going on and a, a lot more attention being paid to trauma-informed care. It's the school of thought that takes existing research and what we know and figures out, given what we know about the impact of trauma on a child, how can we improve the way we treat children and adults in healthcare, in education, in interpersonal relationships, in the workplace? How can we use what we know to improve outcomes for all people and be trauma-informed?
1: It sounds to me that if a child experiences trauma in childhood, this research is showing that it actually changes the way their brain works It changes the way they see themselves in the world. It probably attacks their self-esteem. And that wound, that scar, stays with them all the way through adulthood. And this has become your new mission, to figure this out and to help children
2: in DCF with this. Is that correct? I think I will continue to be a student and try to continually learn about trauma-informed care and the impact of trauma on children and adults You are now taking
1: your passion for this mission to the national level as the chair of the First Spouses Association. What's the goal there?
2: This is part of the National Governors Association. I'm the chair right now for the Spouses Association, which is all the first spouses from all the states and protectorates. It's an incredible group of people who work as volunteers on whatever initiative they're passionate about. Because I'm the chair, I have influence over what topics we take on you know, during my chairmanship. And so trauma-informed care is my focus with the NGA, largely because so many of the first spouses across the United States are working in fields related to this, fields that are impacted by trauma and can be positively impacted when we become trauma-informed so we're all trying to understand the research and learn how we can impact the people in our state the next group of questions i ask everybody who sits across from me
1: for one of these really open and honest interviews what is the best piece of advice you have ever received
2: the best piece of advice i ever received is start anywhere it was from a friend of mine who knows me really well and i think i tend to suffer from maybe a little bit of analysis paralysis and she just looked at me and said just start just start anywhere so don't be afraid go out do what you're gonna do take a risk don't be afraid to fail start anywhere. move forward
1: you are such a devoted mom what is mother love to you
2: Oh my gosh, mother love is unconditional and bottomless. When an
1: obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it besides doing a whole tactical strategy?
2: <laughs> I think I'm a big collaborator and I really do not think that I have you know, the right answer all the time. If I'm faced with an obstacle, I'm going to try to understand fully where the no is coming from, you know, why someone would have put up a barrier and try to find common ground.
1: Part of loving someone is shouldering their burden. And during hard times or with the stress of running the Commonwealth,
2: how do you and Charlie stay strong? I think communication is the key and also the biggest challenge. And, you know, you've got to be able to laugh. Success means different things to different
1: people at different times in their lives. At this moment in this very high profile chapter in your life, Lauren Baker, what does success mean to you?
2: It means that when I look back on my life I will be able to say that I had a happy marriage, a happy family, and I was able to live up to the many blessings that
1: I have been given. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest on The Story Behind Her Success, First Lady of Massachusetts, Lauren Baker.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. This is a new series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. Connect with Candy anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?